First John chapter three, verses one through three. Uh, there may be a few things in this evening's message that I've shared here at Hume before, but this passage is my favorite passage in the New Testament. And I'd mentioned that uh, First John, I think, maybe its only rival would be the book of Deuteronomy for the book that calls us to love God more. And um, it's interesting to me too, I don't know if I mentioned this, but the most quoted books in the New Testament are Psalms and Isaiah, but the most quoted books by Jesus are Deuteronomy. It is Deuteronomy. He rebuffs Satan's attacks all three times, quoting from Deuteronomy. When he's asked what's the most important thing we could do with our life, and he shares the great command, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength, he adds mind to that list, by the way. It, it's, it's all from Deuteronomy. But John is a rival. It tells us in these five chapters so much about the love of God. It's remarkable. And we're right in the middle of this book, and we've talked about the love that pursues yesterday morning. We talked about the love that nurtures, and tonight we want to talk about the love that's unconditional. Let me read the passage, pray, and let's see if we can jump in it with both feet. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. But we know that if he should appear, we shall be like him, because we shall see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed upon him purifies himself just as he is pure. Let's pray. Father, it blows our minds that you love us. And that you invite us into relationship with you. I, I, I believe, Lord, that the highest pleasure you've experienced is relationship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that when you created us, you created us to enter into that relationship with you, and it totally blows me away. Help us to so value that privilege. And help us to see more deeply this evening something about it. But I, I pray, Lord, again, knowing that I, I have such limits. And I, I don't decry that, Father. I, I, I appreciate that. I think it's the way you've made each of us. We're so limited. And it's hard to believe that with limits of one person, you could touch the hearts and lives of a room full of people. But again, we believe that your Holy Spirit could take the crumbs that are offered and distribute them in a way that everybody would hear what he or she needs to hear. And I pray that out of that, each one would have the affirmation that this wasn't about a person looking at a text of Scripture but it was about you having a transaction with that person, wherever they're sitting in this room, from your word to their heart to speak to the challenges in their life. Lord, let something supernatural take place and let each person who hears sense in that hearing how deeply they are loved by you and valued by you. And I ask this, Father, in Christ's name, that we would see things happen this evening that could only be attributed to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, it's, it's interesting. I, I wore this shirt this evening, and, and um, I, I like the fact that I'm not a, a, a teaching professor anymore. I'm still, I'm still around quite a bit. I, uh, 
I'm, I'm on an airplane almost every week giving lectures, different places and so on, but I don't have to grade papers anymore. And it, it is so wonderful. Gary, you're a retired professor, you know what I'm talking about. And, and I, I, I miss the encounter with the students, but they, we still have students dropping by the house quite a bit, and old students, I, I go to be with them all over where they might be in ministries, different places. But nevertheless, this shirt was for me somewhat significant because this is the fraternity I was in, in college. And they were all local fraternities on our campus. They didn't allow any international organizations on campus. But it was a fraternity, almost all athletes. And, and, and I pledged, I was a brand new Christian. And, and I remember going through the pledging stuff and there was some hazing stuff that went on and I, I didn't think twice about it. I grew up in South Central and you know, that was nothing. But then I'm a Christian and I start sharing Jesus with people. And uh, I participated in the hazing like the guys who were active had done it with me. And I didn't see the incongruity. New Christian, didn't have very big horizons for my new faith. And some of these guys got in the fraternity that semester and they looked at me and they said to me, we can't call you brother, and we have no clue how you can call yourself a Christian. Remember I said last night, I prayed, Lord, discipline me? That was just before those people started making those comments, and it was in that context. Uh, our fraternity had an interesting thing. We, we would sit around in a square in our meetings, and you'd start with the youngest member, and he would get up, and he would go, and he would say, brother so-and-so, I have a knock for you, or I have a boost. The knock would be constructive criticism, and it had to be thoughtful. You couldn't say, you, you left the dishes in the sink last night in the apartment. That wasn't, that wasn't the kind of depth we were looking for. Deep stuff. And, and, and then maybe you'd go to somebody and say, I have a boost for you, and it'd be a word of uh, constructive encouragement. Well, in the months after these guys got in, I think the Grand Canyon could have been dug in the number of people that came to me to tell me. And, and the problem with it was what they said was true. How do you get through that? How, how can we look honestly at what's going on in our life? And I think it has to be undergirded by the grace of God and the love of God. Because his love is unconditional. He won't love you less because you mess up, and he doesn't love you more because you do well. And I think we need to be rooted in that love. So anyway, we begin there with this text. It tells us if, basically, we're rooted in God's love, we, we can, I think, look honestly at these things in our life, and we can grow. We don't have to be stuck. I, 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 you guys know about the Johari window and communication theory? How many of you have heard of it before or something? A few of you. Okay, it's, it's not from Pakistan or India, it doesn't get the name Johari from that. It was Joseph and Harry, the two communication theorists who came up with the theory, so they named it Johari Window. And it has these different pains. The first pain is what I know about you, or you know about me, and I know about me. It's, it's the obvious stuff. I'm, I'm bald, a little bit paunchy. I have a white beard. Um, I'm extroverted, my word. And you know that if you've ha been around me at all. The next pain is what I don't know about me and you do know. So if I was 
uh, blowing my nose before I came over here, and I had a booger still hanging out of my nose. You might see it, and I might not. Have you ever had something like that happen to you? And you see people all day long, they're kind of looking at you funny, and then you have to go to the bathroom, you look in the mirror, and you see, oh, my word, how long has that been there? How many of you want to hear about the booger if it's hanging out of your nose early? Yeah, I'm with you. How many of you want to hear about the soul boogers, the character flaws? We don't usually want to hear about those. And if you thought that you better look good or you're not going to make it, we need to go back and get rooted in the love of God so we can hear those things. Then there's also what I do know about myself and other people don't know. My older brother, Chester, saved me from a near drowning accident when I was in junior high, and he was the one that brought me to the meeting the night I became a Christian. I loved him deeply. He was one of the smartest people I ever met. When he died at 48, he had a library of 40,000 books. And he knew it was in him. That's a surprising thing. And he had a deep love for Jesus. He lived a relatively simple life. And, and um, I, was, I was deeply moved by him, and I was asked by my family to preach at his funeral. And I loved him. I thought I knew him, but as I was preparing the eulogy, I thought about this third pane of the Johari window. Yeah, our, Tim's brother died about the same time mine did, and that's what bonded us as friends. But the, 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 the thing was, this third pain, it's what you know about yourself and other people don't know unless you tell them. And I want you to think for a second about all the thoughts you've had today since you got up. How many of them have you processed with another person? And then you think of a cumulative effect of a lifetime of those thoughts. We're basically mysteries to one another. And I realized that as I was preaching my brother's funeral. I knew him, but then I realized there were depths of him I couldn't explore. And so it is even in a marriage. Your spouse doesn't know about these things unless you share. You need to be secure in the love of Jesus that if you shared it and people didn't hear you well, you're still okay because Jesus loves you. Then the last, the last one, pain, is what we don't know about ourselves and nobody else knows either. My dad was in three D-Day invasions in the South Pacific during World War II. And he's going ashore in landing craft with the Marines and he's hearing bullets ping off that landing craft and in a moment they're going to hit sand and the front end's going to go down. What do you do in that moment? Do you run out in the hail of bullets or do you sit in the fetal position in the landing craft and cry for your mom? We can talk till we're blue in the face about what we would do, but we just don't know. We don't know. But maybe the love of God can fortify us so we could begin to have the expectation that maybe we would perform better and better as we grow. So if you're going to tune an orchestra, um, how do you tune, uh, say, the piano? A.W. Tozer, in one of his books, said, how do you tune 100 pianos? If you tune the second one to the first one, and then the third one to the second one, and the fourth one to the third one, and the fifth one to the fourth one, you're going to have organized discord. You need to tune them all to a common fork. Uh, how do you get football players to all play in coordination when they play different positions on a game? Well, first off, you start with a playbook, a common playbook. Carl Barth came to America in 1955 to speak at a theology conference at Columbia University in New York. 
Uh, but he was a big Civil War fan. He said he wouldn't come unless they gave him tours of all the Civil War battlefields. That's interesting, isn't it? There were thousands of theologians gathered at that gathering. And after he had given his lectures, one of the people stood up and asked him, Dr. Bart, what is the greatest theological truth? Here's this eminent theologian. And Bart said, the greatest theological truth is this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's great. I'm on that same page. So here it is, John saying, See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. It's amazing. I, 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 I've talked with students over the years who are not particularly akin to the passages of Scripture that talk about God as Father because maybe they've had a bad father figure in their life. And yet my experience has been, if I talk with one who has a bad father, I might talk to nine others who had bad fathers who take to the father passages in Scripture like a duck to water, because they long to have the vacuum filled. And here's the perfect father. And that father, people, he loves you. There, there was a guy, um, his name was Thomas Fuller. He was an English pastor in the 17th century. And he wrote a devotional on the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. I don't know about you, but if a guy has time to write a, gene, a devotional about a genealogy, he might have too much time on his hands. But nevertheless, it's interesting because he was well aware, Fuller was well aware, that the scriptures say that the sins of the parents are visited on the children, the third and fourth generation. Unless we be uh, hamstrung by that, it also says that just because the fathers eat sour grapes, it doesn't mean the children's teeth will be set on edge. If you see where those passages of Scripture are juxtaposed, you'll discover that it mentions that the sins of the parents are visited on the children, the third and fourth generation, four times in the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, when Israel was on the threshold of their national life. And the ones that say that just because the fathers eat sour grapes, it doesn't mean the children's teeth will be set on edge. They are both in the prophetic books when Israel's national life is flickering and about ready to go out into the Babylonian captivity. The words are given as hope. Hope to remind us how we ought to be and hope to know that even if we've messed up, there's still more beyond. But here, in light of that, is what Thomas Fuller wrote about the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. Lord, I find the genealogy of my Savior strangely checkered with four remarkable changes in four immediate generations. One, Rehoboam begat Abiah, that is, a bad father begat a bad son. Two, Abiah begat Asa, that is, a bad father a good son. Three, Asa begat Jehoshaphat, that is, a good father a good son. And four, Jehoshaphat begat Joram, that is a good father, a bad son. I see, Lord, from hence that my father's piety cannot be handed on. And that's bad news for me. But I see also that actual impiety is not always hereditary. And that is good news for my son. Don't you appreciate the tenderness and honesty of that? We've all had fathers. And some of them did well and some of them did poorly. And those of us who have been fathers are well aware of the times 
when we've done poorly, and maybe we're aware of the times when we've done well. But there's one father who always gets it right. And this passage says, people, he's wild about you. He loves you. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon you that you should be called children of God. For this reason, it says in Scripture, the world does not know us because it did not know him. We're to march to a different drumbeat. Some people try and get their sense of self based on how other people are looking at them. Donald Miller, who wrote Blue Like Jazz, wrote a sequel to it called Searching for God Knows What. And he said when he was in high school, he, he was always on the fringe of the social set and longing to get inside. And he said that um, one day he was reading at home and he read this poem and he was deeply moved by it, so he memorized it. About two weeks later, somebody at school made some comment and he said, oh, that reminds me of a poem and he recited it from memory. And all the other students said, Miller, you are really smart. You are smart. And it dawned on him two things at that moment. Number one, he started memorizing more poetry after that. <laughs> and number two, he realized he needed to gain a sense of himself from something outside of himself, but everybody he was looking to were as insecure as he was. There's only one person who can give you a proper understanding of yourself, and that is the God who loves you, who's patient when you goof up, who nurtures you so that you can get better, and will not abandon you no matter what. That's amazing. And we who understand that a little bit march to a different drumbeat. We're looking to him to understand ourselves. Um, and, and it says in Scripture, too, that um, uh, we long for another city where Jesus reigns. It says that Abraham went out from Ur of the Chaldees because he was looking for the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Therefore, God was not ashamed to be called his God, for he was preparing a city for them. We long for him, ultimately, if we're honest with ourselves. Psalm 16, 11, Thou make known to me the path of life, and thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand, there are pleasures forever. How often we get distracted to the right-handed pleasures rather than the primary pleasure. James 1.17 echoes something similar. It says, Every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. God gives gifts to woo us to himself. And sometimes we begin to allow the gifts to be replacements for him. They were never meant to do that. And they set us up for levels of disappointment. Augustine said we had to move towards what he called ordo amorous, ordered love. You put first things first, God's love first, these other things, you can enjoy them properly. If they're taken away, you're not in any way removed from the first love. So ordo amorous. Ecclesiastes has it also, the whole argument of that book. There was one Bible scholar who called the poetic books of the Bible the how-to books. Uh, Job is how to suffer. Psalms, how to worship. But it's kind of sketchy, isn't it? I don't know about you. Have you ever talked to somebody and said, I love the Psalms. They're so comforting. I say, yeah, well, how about Psalm 137, how blessed are those who bash Babylonian babies' heads against the rocks? Or Psalm 109, I pray that all my enemies' children will be orphans. I mean, you read the Psalms, and they are as textured as human emotion can possibly be. And I think they're teaching us how to worship, but they're teaching us how to worship in good times and bad. 
They're trying to give us an index to the issues of the heart. But how to worship. Proverbs, how to be wise. Song of Solomon, how to love. Ecclesiastes, how to be confused about life. I don't know, you know, what's, where are we going with that one? No, it's how to enjoy life. Same themes of those other verses we've already mentioned. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity where? Under the sun. You'll never make sense of life from an under the sun perspective. And, and the reason why is because it says in Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has placed eternity in our hearts. The phrase under the sun is mentioned 28 times in that book. It's so easy for us to get distracted by under the sun things. We're embodied spirits, it's true. But we need to keep first things first. So consequently then it goes on to say in Ecclesiastes 2.25, I think the key verse, for who can eat and who can enjoy life without him? You give me all these other things, I'm going to enjoy them, you take them away, I'm still going to be okay if I have him. You remove him from the equation, I'm not going to be okay because these things can't do for me what only God can do for me. And, and I don't know if you're like me, but we mess up. Uh, Ray Ortland, who used to pastor Lake Avenue Congregational Church, he was one of my favorite pastors in Southern California. And I remember when I was in seminary, I wrote a paper on him, and he gave me some time. Years later, we got to know each other, other fairly well. His, uh, his son, Ray Jr., is a friend. And his grandkids were students of mine at Wheaton, and I did, uh, I did premarital counseling for one of his sons. But it was kind of a fun knowledge of three generations in that family. But I remember saying to Ray Ortland, what's the Christian life for you? What's it like? He said, Jerry, you scratch and claw every step of the way. Do any of you have that experience? Is it like that a little bit? Because you recognize that they're, you're sort of on an oscilloscope. You have the high moments, you have the low moments. You're doing well for a while, and then just when you get a little cocky about it, God brings you down a size. In light of that, then, here it is. For this reason, the world does not know us, because we're not looking to the things that the world looks to for fulfillment. We're looking to him, and we're trying to understand what that means, and ultimately, it's undergirded by the love of God. There's a wonderful passage from Frederick Buechner's book, telling the truth, the gospel, as tragedy, comedy, and fairy tale. And in that book, he talks about a New England pastor who, with all of his challenges that week, he's getting up into the wooden pulpit. You've seen those high wooden pulpits you have to climb up in New England sometimes? And the guy is pulling up his Geneva gown so he doesn't step into the hem of it as he goes up the steps. And he's not aware at that day that he's got a man in his congregation who's a banker who is facing Monday morning some financial bit of trickery, and he's trying to decide if he should do it to make the boss happy or if he should stand up and do the right thing. He's got a junior high teacher who's struggling with sexual identity. He's got a young girl who feels the baby kick inside of her for the first time, and she doesn't know who the father is. He's got a young guy who's home from college, and the only reason why he's there is because he didn't want to argue with his mother about why he didn't want to be in church. And all these things are going on in the complex issues of people's hearts, and he gets up to the top of the pulpit. He pulls on the little pulpit light switch, and he deals out his 
Sermon notes like a Mississippi gambler deals out his cards, and Beekner writes, and never have the stakes been higher. We've got these things going on in our lives. Everybody in here is different. You've got your own third pane of the Johari window. And as you live this life, you need to be convinced of the unconditional nature of God's love for you. And it's important. So we go on. Because the world doesn't know that we're constantly looking to him because we want something solid in our life. They don't realize that we're marching maybe to a different drummer than they're marching to. But it goes on to say, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he should appear, we shall be like him, because we shall see him just as he is. One day we're going to be like him. I don't think it means ever that we're going to be like him in his deity. We will never be uncreated. It's impossible. We will never achieve omniscience. We will never be rivals for his power and be omnipotent. We will never be omnipresent. We will be like Christ in his perfect humanity, not like Christ in his deity. But I don't, I don't know about you, but I, I am so eager for that day to come. I am weary of my lapses. I'm weary of the scratching and clawing. I'm grateful it's undergirded by the love of God, but I can't wait till the whole thing's over. Can you? One day we'll be like him. And what will happen on that day? Do you ever wonder about it? Do you ever imagine? Do you ever think to yourself, I wonder, we know there's infrared and ultraviolet. There's wider spectrum than what we could see. Have you ever thought that there might be spectrum so far beyond it and somehow our capacity to see will be increased? When Paul has his vision up into the highest heavens and he says, I saw unutterable things that can't be spoken. He didn't have a vocabulary big enough probably to describe it. I was never born with a sense of smell. I wonder, what's it going to be like to smell? What are the flavors going to be like in heaven? I, I just think about, what will it be like to see Jesus without the fogginess? I, I remember when I was in college, um, we were playing in this one football game. I saw it on the game film what happened. I got tackled. I was a running back. Again, you have to take it by faith. But I got tackled, and I saw in the film there was a pileup, and my head was sticking out of the pileup, and a guy speared me in the back of the helmet after I was tackled. He got charged a 15-yard penalty, but I got a concussion. I had no clue. The elevator didn't go to the top floor. I ended up going into the other team's huddle. I remember that. They were laughing at me, pushing me back. Our quarterback, he, he got drafted and played five years in the pros. He said, he said, Jerry, are you okay? Are you okay? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Call the play. I'm okay. I'm okay. He calls the play. Nothing went in. And I said, Wayne, what do I do? What do I do? He says, you're not in the play. Just go to the right. I tackled our other running back. Coaches pull me from the game. The next week, Monday, I'm out practicing knocking heads again. It was a different era then. The next Saturday, I get dinged again. And everything was fuzzy. And I remember crying out, God, please don't let this happen to me. This is my senior year. And everything went immediately clear. And I've often wondered ever since then, 
If when we get to heaven, we'll realize we've lived our lives concussed, and we get to heaven, and finally, it's going to be clear. What will our first word be? I've had a 40, 40, two-year, 42-year debate with a friend of mine about this, what our first word will be when we get to heaven. My, my friend thinks it's going to be, oh. <laughs> oh. That's why that person I cared for so deeply died so suddenly. Oh, that's why we experienced that financial reversal and we were bereft and didn't really know what was next. Oh, that's why that person I cared for so deeply left me high and dry so unexpectedly. Oh, oh, I'm beginning to see, Lord, what you were doing and all that. It's interesting. It's, it's not bad, but I think he's wrong, of course. <laughs> I think our first word when we finally become unconcussed and we can see clearly is going to be, wow! Wow, I didn't know that about him. Wow, I didn't know this about him. I don't think there's going to be a moment in heaven where we're not going to have wow pretty close to our lips. If you know zero to a hundred bits of information about God, how much more is there still to know? An infinite amount. If you know zero to a thousand bits, how much more is there still to know? An infinite amount. Zero to a, a million bits, how much more is there still to know? An infinite amount. I think it's going to be Utterly mind-blowing forever. No wonder. I, I remember when I read through the Bible the first time from cover to cover as a freshman in college. I, I, it's, it was amazing to me. I saw the, the recovery group people, you know, my people throughout the scriptures. But I got to the end, and at the end, everybody was standing before the throne, and they're just saying, well, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive honor and glory and power and dominion and majesty forever and ever. Amen. And I thought to myself, that sounds pretty boring. The next year, I read through from cover to cover. Guess what? When I got to the end, they were still doing it. And I thought, what do they see that I don't see? Wow. Wow. We'll never get to the bottom of it. It's going to be amazing. That's fine for then. But what about now, when we're not like Christ? when we're scratching and clawing. Is there anything that knowing about the love of God that's unconditional will help us here? It says, beloved, now we're children of God. That means even in this moment, when we don't have it all together, his love does not abandon us. He loves us deeply. We talked about the God who pursues and the love that pursues Sunday morning. That love is operational in every moment of our life. Would we attend to it? So as I think about that, I think to myself, how can I describe this? And I'll see if I can give you a couple of pictures. One is when our kids were little. Uh, we would try and figure out how to discipline them. We, we, we read books on it, and we went to seminars on it and that sort of thing. And, you know, the books are helpful. They're writing about things beyond what we know, but you wonder if the people who wrote them really knew as much as what we're experiencing at that particular moment. We still feel like we're stuck in a labyrinth or something like that. But Claudia and I talked about an approach to discipline. And we decided if the, if the kids did something that was ornery or something they shouldn't have done, they'd get a timeout for as many minutes as they were old. Four minutes to a four-year-old gives new meaning to the word eternal. 
If they did something that was egregious that could cause life or limb to be imperiled, we, we would spank them. But we'd always make sure they knew why. We would never spank them for something we hadn't told them they shouldn't do. And our kids were really creative. They kept coming up with new things that we needed to inform them. No, that's inappropriate. <laughs> but I'd say to them, what did I tell you not to do? And if they said, Dad, you told me not to play in the street. I said, what were you doing? I was playing in the street. What did I say I would do if I caught you playing in the street? You said you'd spank me, Daddy. And I said, do you, do you think I love you any less because you did that? They said, no. Is there anything you could ever do that would make me stop loving you? No, Dad. But am I happy you did that? No, Dad. And then I'd administer my loving kindness to their hindquarters. <laughs> I, I, I didn't always do well, but most of the time I did. And you know what my kids would do as soon as I was done spanking them? They would turn around like this for the hug because I would take them in my arms and I'd hold them till they were happy. You know, we, we, they would cry, and maybe we would sway. Maybe we would sing. After a while, maybe I'd tickle them and send them on their way. I never dismissed them from my presence. I wanted to know I didn't like what they did, but I never rejected them as a person. No problem with my boys. I have three boys, but I have a daughter, and, and when she would turn around like that for the hug, you, you, I would look at her face, and every orifice of her face would have leaked. Her eyes would have leaked, her nose would have run, her mouth would have drooled, and she's turning around like this for the hug. And, and, and I'm brought to a, a tense moment because I want to tell her, Alicia, I've got that hug for you, but um, maybe you could go take a shower first and <laughs> come back. But that would communicate something I didn't want to communicate, so I would take her in my arms and she would put her head on my shoulder and give evidence of her DNA all over my clothes. And I learned in that day, every father who loves his child bears a stain because he loves the child. We're not there yet, but beloved, now, he bears the stain because he loves the child. Let me see if I can give you another image. So we went through the childbearing years, and I was a youth pastor at that time. My wife hated maternity clothes, and they didn't have these cutesy maternity shops back then. If you wanted to buy maternity clothes, you had to go to some dark corner of a women's department store, and you had to look at the stuff, almost like they're ashamed they were selling it. She had a couple maternity outfits. There were some other women in the church going through that same period, and you saw this maternity ward sort of wander around the church. I remember one Sunday walking up to this woman after church up down the aisle, and I put my arm around her, and I looked over. It wasn't my wife. She was in my wife's clothes, but it wasn't her. <laughs> and every woman, when the baby comes, wants to get rid of the maternity clothes, and as soon as they're ready, we would save up so that Claudia could go out and buy a couple of new outfits. Have you ever seen a new mother with a new baby with a new outfit where the baby and the new outfit are in any way compatible? The mother nurses the baby. She puts a diaper on her shoulder. She puts the baby's face in the diaper so that the baby could hit the diaper. Does the baby hit the diaper? No, they're notoriously bad shots. But every mother who loves her child bears the stain because she loves the child. From those two images, do you get a little bit of an insight into this text? One day we'll be like him. We're not like him yet, but now he loves us. So what's the consequence? In verse 3, it says, everyone who has this hope fixed upon him. 
The hope that this is a father who loves us unconditionally. The hope that one day we'll see him as he is and we'll be in awe and the hope that one day our sin will be eradicated and the hope that one day, one day, not only will it be eradicated, but this day he still loves us and bears a stain because he loves the child. Everyone who has this hope fixed upon him purifies himself just as he is pure. The prompt and the motivation for everything we should do in our Christian life shouldn't be what other people think of us outside. It should be what he thinks of us inside. That doesn't mean we shouldn't listen to criticisms we get from other people. We should be more ready to listen to the criticisms we get from other people because we're secure in the love of Jesus. We should be grateful for anywhere we could hear truth or that the booger in our nose or the booger in our soul is showing. Everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. I mentioned to you about my dad being in World War II. He was a Marine. He was actually with the Navy. He was a corpsman with the 2nd Marine Division, and he was in three D-Day invasions in World War II. He was in the first wave to go ashore at Tarawa. Some people have said it was the bloodiest battle of World War II. It was to get an island the size of the parking lot of the Pentagon. 5,000 Marines went in on the first assault, 30,000 in all. He was in the first assault, and the beach he went in at, 1,500 went in on that beach. It was the island where they misjudged the tides, and they couldn't get over the reef. And they dropped these guys off, and a lot of them drowned right there. Took them four hours to get from drop-off to the beach, and by the time they got to the beach, of that 1,500 he went in with, there were only 200 left. He was in the D-Day invasion at Saipan. Took place about nine days after the D-Day in Normandy. Most people don't know much about Saipan, but we lost about 3,000 more American soldiers at Saipan than we lost at Normandy. You don't hear much about it because you can go to Normandy and see it and then go to Paris or London or Rome or something like that. You want to go to Saipan, it's in the middle of the Pacific. And then he was in the first wave in the D-Day invasion of Tinian, the island we took for the Enola Gay to take off to drop the atomic bombs. He was horribly wounded at Tinian. My wife's dad flew on both the atomic bomb drops. He was on both those missions. So we both decided we wanted to go see where our dads fought in World War II. I was able to identify the beaches that he had been on. And I stood on those beaches and saw what he went through. And I wept. I wept. My father was a good man. I never heard him say a negative word about anybody he fought against during World War II. He had respect for people. I, I never heard my father say a negative word about anybody of any ethnicity. I, I, I never heard my father say a cuss word. Ever. I never heard a foul word come from his mouth. He was a good man. He struggled with some post-traumatic stress disorder, a little OCD, but he was fundamentally good. But I also never heard him tell me he loved me when I was growing up. I had no doubt about it. He had all the trappings of a man who loved his son, but he never said the word until I was a sophomore in college. He came up to me, and uncharacteristic of him, he put his arm around me, and he said, Jerry, I love you. What do you think I did? You think I said, well, it's about time you said it? <laughs> no. I wept. 
And I said, Dad, I love you too. And you know, you know existentially that that would be the proper response. And I knew it in that moment, even though I'd never heard it before. And I said, Dad, I love you too. And I found myself on weekends coming home from college to help him rake the leaves, mow the lawn, and wash the car. And I realized at that time, I could have come home to rake the leaves, mow the lawn, and wash the car to try and get him to love me. Or knowing he loved me, I could have come home, rake the leaves, mow the lawn, and wash the car because I knew he loved me. Same act, but one has a much deeper motivational difference. If you're living your life trying to get God to love you, you're kind of wasting your time. You need to live in the reality that he loves you, and then you need to go out and live like he does. That unconditional love gives us an incredible amount of security so we could hear the knocks and the boosts of life. Let's pray. Father, we're, we're neophytes at this. We're not real good at it. And every, every time we turn a corner, it seems to me, we see something that still is niggly in our life and needs a little work. Maybe we focus on that. We can focus on it, too, because we believe we're secure in you. Maybe we get a good handle on that, and then we make another turn, and there's something else. And like Ray Ortland said, sometimes we feel like we're scratching and clawing. But we thank you that the scratching and clawing is all worth it because we can be secure in the fact that your love is unconditional. And may we never cease to be grateful for that fact. We pray for Christ's sake.